Welcome to the Ancestral Kitchen Podcast with Allison, a European town dweller in central Italy, and Andrea living on a newly created family farm in Northwest Washington State, USA. Pull up a chair at the table and join us as we talk about eating, cooking, and living with ancient ancestral food wisdom in a modern world kitchen. Welcome back to the Ancestral Kitchen Podcast. Hello, Andrea. Hello, Allison. I'm so happy to be here with you. And me too. And and this is a, a particularly um, interesting episode for me because we are going to be talking about sourdough, which anyone who follows me on Instagram knows that quite a lot of my posts are sourdough. So I'm <laughs> excited to dive into this topic with you this morning. This is and, um, just your thing. It totally is. Exactly. It's been my thing for a couple of years now, and I've still got much to learn, so we'll see what comes up today. Um, I We started a little bit earlier today for me, so, but I have had my breakfast, so um, in our usual starting mode, and in a sourdough kind of styly, I shall um, share that I had a sourdough pancake for breakfast, oh, yum. which was yummy. I used spelt and I put a little bit of chestnut flour in. Chestnuts are everywhere in Tuscany, local and fresh and absolutely delicious. And the flour is sweet, but works really well when you mix it with something kind of nutty like spelt. So I cooked one of those up in some lard that we rendered. And my favorite pancake topping, it's kind of, I'm. I'm easily pleased with pancakes. (laughs) Just having a pancake in itself is enough. But I like to put um, miso and ground linseed and olive oil on my pancake. So that's what I had this morning. And it was crunchy and delicious and just lovely, lovely. I love that. So So I'm suitably sated. Now, you definitely tend towards the savory toppings and you've said that before that you don't prefer to have Mm. as much sweet and is that because you said that you basically overdosed on sweets for so long yeah I've got an interesting kind of situation with sweet in my life in that because I was and when I was younger I was overweight I did that really by going mad on sweet things I used to eat chocolate in kilogram bars and cakes and biscuits and just sugar in its neat form as well. And that led me to a place, as I've described in one of the earlier podcasts, where um, when I was 20, I was twice the weight that I am now. Right. And I I lost the weight a long time ago and maintained it. I lost 140 pounds. But my biome at that early stage of my life, I think, was affected to a point where it's it's completely different to what it would have been if I had not had that relationship with sugar. Mm -hmm. And what I found out over the last probably five or six or seven years is that when I consume sugar, really in any form, including fruit, um, when I have my um, cycle, I get vertigo. And through trial and error and going months without having any sugar at all, the vertigo just stopped. And anyone who's had vertigo knows it's absolutely debilitating. It's just horrible. And so I'd rather not have the vertigo than have the sugar. Um, I'm hoping that as I slowly build up my probiotics and over many years affect my biome through what I'm doing with um, slowly increasing sauerkraut, slowly increasing other probiotics, that as I move on in my life, that situation will change and I will be able to introduce some fruit because I do miss fruit a bit um, but at the moment and it's interesting because taste buds are so um, easily influenced once you stop something your taste buds do adjust and you start I mean I find I've started to taste sweet in many many other things that I never tasted sweet in before this happened um, so I I do get sweet pleasure from some other foods that perhaps other people wouldn't consider sweet like for instance the chestnut flour but right. really with chestnut flour I only I'll have a spoonful of that so rarely so it was a real treat for me this morning um, but I don't I, I feel like I'm doing something positive for my health and I understand it's 
you know because of my particular kind of set of things that right. happened to me as a, as a kid and I find it amazing that that you know that was 25 years ago and yet still my yes. biome has been shaped and is living every day the effects of what happened to me back then it's amazing that does not fit with our modern obsession with fast you know this is in seven days or you know if I take this pill, will I be fixed tomorrow? You know, that, that that's a concept outside of our, um, you know, microwave society kind of perception of things. You're right. And it, and it takes some, it's taken me some getting used to, you know, the fact that about, I think three years ago, I said, right, okay, I need to slowly increase my sauerkraut. I'm not doing very well when I have loads of it. I couldn't sleep. Mm -hmm. So I started from literally half a gram and then slowly, 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 I've built up to 26 grams of sauerkraut. But to give me the kind of mindset to think that that was something that I was going to do and and it might take years and years and years, it's, it's taken a shift in the kind of cultural ideas that I have, like you said, around things should happen quickly, things can happen quickly. Because I think in the biome, although you can affect your biome, definitely by having probiotics very quickly, to make real lasting change takes a long time. It does. It's kind of sad though how fast we can destroy it. That doesn't seem to take any time at all. (laughs) Why? (laughs) Oh dear. So tell us about your supper this evening. What what have you eaten? Okay, so tonight was actually... Wonder well, always dinner is wonderful. I have to say, but um, tonight was the the perfect night to make me look really good on the podcast because um, <laughs> <laughs> we're on day two of a hog slaughter, and so processing the hog. And one thing that we have learned with butchering is it's fun to just take out whatever cut you want you know some exorbitant cut it doesn't matter and be like this is our dinner <laughs> anything you want so gary my husband cut out some steaks from the pig and he cut out one piece of muscle that's um two well it's two muscles actually i think but it's called the the Denver cut and the Copa and you can separate them but he kept them together then he like he rolled it up he tied it with string and he marinated it for a couple hours this afternoon but it was it was kind of a fun yeah I think he used um garlic and I don't remember what he used just two or three things but anyways I thought to myself this is a good example of how a real food dinner can be really really fast because he did marinate that um, Denver and Copa piece, but he also made the sirloin steak cuts from the mm. shoulder. Mm. And there was plenty of both, you know, we didn't really need both, but we just, we made them both anyways. <laughs> and, um, he said we were working on the sausage, plowing away through everything. And then he goes, okay, well, we, we should probably stop and eat dinner. So he stopped, <laughs> he took the food out to the grill. I went in the kitchen and made biscuits and in 20 minutes we were sitting down at the table with these grilled steaks you know pretty decadent for us to just have a huge piece of meat we usually don't just have like a piece of meat we usually have meat in things (laughs) so this felt really fun and then I made speedy biscuits the the evil non-soaked biscuits using just raw cream Mm -hmm. and bread flour and um then we had fermented mustard and sauerkraut we had applesauce and a honey apple jelly and butter and it just i don't know we're sitting there and we always say a blessing before food and i could just feel my mouth just watering <laughs> i was so I think mine's watching now. yeah it all looks so good you know there's the salt and the fat right on the plate in front of you and and mm. um i definitely would say that butchering and home butchering and um traditional or ancestral nose to tail preparation is so different from the supermarket cuts i mm, I don't even think I would know how to cook meat from the grocery store because 
it's so easy to cook meat from these phenomenal animals you do nothing to it and everybody goes this is literally the best (laughs) you know pork beef whatever i've ever had what did you do and you say well it honestly didn't do anything but the farmer for the past two years has been feeding this animal the best of the best the top of the line and it shows up in the meat and everybody appreciate it appreciates it on the plate but then they're surprised and they and then when you say that the meat matters I'm surprised how many people say well I mean you know they don't believe me but but it really does it really does so and so simple like that just to yeah. marinate it, yeah. as I as I listen to you talking I I can imagine kind of the two of you working together and it it the actual home you know as a unit yes. we have a similar relationship me and Rob here in that we kind of complement each other and, and after years of working together we've learned mm-hmm. you know how to read each other's signals and one does one thing one does another <laughs> thing and it just sounded really like you and Gary were working together in kind of a um, harmony there to bring together a, a dinner for you all really really easily. I really appreciate that you mentioned that and actually that that'll transition us into our discussion on sourdough nicely but um, because that is my favorite thing and i actually posted on my instagram stories today i was kind of joking but i said you know it was a picture or a video or whatever of me and gary tying up bags of or paper packs of sausage meat and i said mm-hmm. uh, hashtag farm dates hashtag normalize <laughs> normalize farm dates <laughs> because i don't know for me it feels just very romantic working with the person that i love and doing this project together to take care of our family and feed our children and feed our parents and yeah. um you know just plan for the future and we talk about the future so but um that that definitely will pop up in our conversation about sourdough today especially when we go into the history a little bit so yeah uh, i i totally agree with you i feel that around bread certainly yes all the other (laughs) things I do in the kitchen with my husband Rob but we are often our family is brought together by the things we do grinding the grain or we're mixing bread or we're we're making this week we've been making beer as well and using the mash to make bread and it's something that we all do together and it it every time we do it it's like it creates a new kind of bond between us another sort of a tie and it brings us together and makes us something about the the food that you put on the table if you've all put something into it you you feel bonded by it for sure yes absolutely so take us there so let's talk about bread yeah let's talk about (laughs) bread so i've got quite a lot of areas of sourdough to talk about the first thing i wanted to do was just to try and define what sourdough is and i i looked up various definitions and and i didn't really like them so i tried to think about what sourdough means to me and so for me, sourdough is a, a bread product that is completely risen by wild yeasts and bacteria. And those wild yeasts and bacteria work over a long time frame. And they produce lactic acid, acetic acid, and gases that rise your bread. And the bread is healthier, it's more natural, it keeps better, and it has much more flavour than alternative breads. Oh, yeah. How do you feel about that definition? Do you want to add anything to it? Well, I mean, there's all the science behind it, but I just think sourdough tastes better. (laughs) It just does. Yeah, I agree. I agree with you. So, first of all, I wanted to kind of say, well, how, how was bread made in our history? Because really, sourdough is although it's very fashionable, it's not a new phenomenon because generally all bread used to be made like this until really very, very recently. um, For absolute millennium, there was no commercial yeast available. There was no commercially baked breads like there are today. Mm -mm. Um, And so those yeasts to make bread would have been made literally from what was around you, captured wild yeasts. There were references in texts from thousands of years ago. And then... As societies moved on, I know in the 1700s in England, people who made bread used to go and get yeast from beer balm, using yeast that were kind of available and around them. And we 
I think it's easy to look at breads in the supermarket that one might see these days and think that's what bread is. But bread really, for 95% of our history, maybe even more, has been sourdough. Yep. Hasn't it? Yep. You've been doing some reading on the history, haven't you? Tell us a bit about what you've uncovered. Yeah, so my sister turned me on to this podcast called The History of Food, so... That's such a good podcast. If you can't listen to enough about food, (laughs) there's more for you. So he referenced in episode 27, which if you want to hear about the history of bread in Breve, go to that episode number 27. It's an hour and 24 minutes. So that might not sound very brief, but I mean, he's trying to cover all of human history so (laughs) but he refers multiple times to this blog which I had to go and find and it's called a collection of unmitigated pedantry and it's a-c-o-u-p dot blog online or just look up I just googled it a collection of unmitigated pedantry and he has a five-part series about bread how did they make it And it is so fascinating because we either don't eat bread because of, you know, their dietary choices or dietary restrictions, or we just don't like it, or we, we do eat it. We just go to the store and we stand in front of shelves with, Mm. um, monetary exchange rates listed there and we choose a plastic bag with the picture on it that most appeals to us or an advertisement on the side that most appeals to us and we go home and that's our bread but bread has pretty much been the foundation of society for quite a long time it's been something that people's you know entire existence rises and falls on So if you have ever read the Bible, then there's tons of, there's just so many literary references to bread in there, like give us a stay our daily bread, you know, um, when the devil tells Jesus to turn stones into bread or, um, Mm. you know, all the way back to, you know, ancient Egypt where the, you know, Hebrews are making their unleavened bread for Passover and things like that. So it's it's just something that is woven throughout all of our history. And as for why, well, what you just said about sourdough is kind of why. It's a really simple, nutritious food that you can make. And I think we have a idea that it's complicated either because um, we've been told so many skills are too hard for us and it's better to leave it to people who are professionals at it and this goes for everything from teaching your kid how to read to making bone broth you know Mm. but um, I think I think with sourdough, what I would say is um, it's been done. It's a simple task that humans have been doing for thousands of years, and it's not hard. It's just different. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I wanted to pick up on what you two words you used to describe bread. You said simple and nutritious. And I wanted to contrast that with the bread that is sold on most of the shelves in the UK, my home country. (laughs) So in the UK, in the early 1960s, there was a method called the Chorley Wood method brought in for bread. And now 80% of the bread on UK shelves is made using this method. And it was so popular because it made it much, much, much cheaper to make bread. It made the bread softer and it doubled the shelf life of it. And what happens in this process is just kind of abominable to me. Oh no. The the standard ingredients of bread are there and then extra hard fats are added, extra yeast is added, extra chemicals are added. And then the bread is whipped in massive machines. The dough is whipped um, to make the loaves 
in an absolute fraction of the time that it would take wow. a normal person to make a yeasted loaf, let alone a sourdough loaf. And then it's sliced, packaged in plastic and sent to the supermarket. And I think, you know, comparing that to the simple and nutritious words that you use to describe bread, it's like the other end no, of, the, so right. of the spectrum. It's now a... And it's, that... Mm. It's be, it's now it's a chemical production. Yeah. <laughs> it's a production line, and and as with so many of the other things we we've talked about and we will talk about, you know, it started with the industrial revolution requiring this quick, large, consistent, scalable product, and because of the discoveries of Louis Pasteur, and the fact that yeasts were alive and his ability to to kind of heat properties to pasteurize them and then inoculate things that kind of led to there being a baker's yeast which in my research by the 1900s was a was a household item in England and then we just seem to have gone completely downhill from there to this place where on the shelves in in the UK are these loaves made in a process that if you showed a baker from three or four hundred years ago they just wouldn't recognize with all Mm -hmm. these additives in that you don't know what they're called when you look at the label and people just think that's bread well i think one of the ways that we get away with this in manufacture is because we're generation by generation removed farther and farther from the memory of bread yeah so when people want to make bread at home bizarrely enough they are now trying to recreate the grocery store bread and they're shocked when spelt sourdough doesn't puff up and fluff up and turn into a sponge the way you know nutritionally stripped denuded wheat like products do when they're combined with chemicals and um that i think is that's theft you know to steal the memory one just one generation at a time and then um you know we're left with all we know is the spongy sliced bread in the store Mm. i think what you're saying is is true there's a a kind of a psychological term for it i think maybe we've talked about it before where it's a new norm for each generation has a new norm because it's what they're used to and what they've grown up with and then because they don't have that previous memory and you can go a little bit farther it seems like it's normal to them yeah yeah exactly yeah exactly with less with less let's less uh disruption people would really fight if you tried to do this you know even 100 years ago but now it's not so hard yeah so it's just slipping away Mm. let's talk about the health benefits because you know we've kind of said how it was normal right and how it was part of the daily household but there are incredible health benefits to slow fermented sourdough bread and on both sides of the coin that's part of the reason why so many people have problems with store-bought bread because the grain is not processed in the same way Mm -hmm. so regarding the the health benefits that that I know of first of all the the grain itself is pre-digested in the sourdough process So that means there's less work for our bodies to do to um, get the nutrients from that grain. And digestion is one of the most energy, um, most high energy tasks of the body. So anything we can do to make that easier allows other energy to be freed up to carry on healing us and do better things in our body. I know that sourdough is lower on the GI index than normal bread because the sugars are metabolized in the process so anyone who has any blood sugar issues would find sourdough better for them than standard bread and regards gut health even though you're cooking the probiotics that are in the starter um, there are postbiotics and paraprobiotics in that cooked material which are going in and changing the layout the territory in your gut biome for the better during the fermentation process the anti-nutrients in the grain the phytates and the lectins are broken down and there are more bioavailable nutrients in the bread because of the fermentation process and 
in addition, the process alters the proteins in the bread. So for the, in the example of a wheat or a spelt, it alters the gluten. And I know that kind of firsthand here because when I met my husband 10 years ago, he couldn't eat wheat at all. He had unbelievable problems with it. And in over the last 10 years, he's moved to a space where, although I cook spelt, most of the time in our house he can he can eat my spout absolutely fine but he can also occasionally eat sourdough wheat without issues and that's incredible considering the um, state he was in when I met him and I think there are a lot of things involved in that but the fact that sourdough that that we make here now alters the gluten in the grain is is a large kind of chunk in why that's happened to him so that's kind of a huge list of the health benefits that if you eat sourdough regularly you're going to get which are just not there in store-bought bread that's been fermented in a few completely devoid whipped up it's an anti-nutrient it you know you you don't even have the portions of the wheat that make the wheat safe for you to ingest in those store-bought breads so you're now putting yourself Mm. at risk just by eating them which is mind-boggling. There was a big um, kind of um, exposure campaign, I would say, about a couple of years ago in Europe about shop-bought sourdough um, because a, a lot of the baking companies were jumping on the sourdough trend and producing loaves that had pretty kind of packaging and looked artisanal and calling them sourdough. And then if you look at the labels, you see they've actually got um, baker's yeast in and they had perhaps vinegar put in yeah. to give that acetic acid flavor and so I wanted to mention here that you know if you don't have at, at this moment the skills or if in a moment when you're having a busy week you think I'll buy a sourdough do look at the labels of the sourdoughs that you see you know if you buy it from a baker it's more likely that it's going to be properly processed but from a supermarket mm, I wouldn't trust seeing the the label sourdough on a supermarket shelf. So do look at the labels and make sure if you if you're buying sourdough that it that it actually is a soured dough. Right. I don't know if that's the same in the US whether that's kind of happened there. We have so many labeling scandals. It's it's worthless to even try to keep up with it. You literally cannot trust anything. And one thing you'll notice on breads here is it will say this huge blaring advertisement on the side made with whole wheat and people think oh all right that's you know that's the real deal but if you look on the back number one ingredient bleached flour and then there is some whole wheat in it see it was made with whole wheat whole wheat was in two (laughs) percent yeah two percent just enough to get on the label so it's it's disappointing and i think that's part of why my frustration tends to um, compel me to make things at home. And I I do acknowledge and I want to make sure that I acknowledge the moms who are listening who are just exhausted and overwhelmed and yeah. think to themselves, okay, so great, I can't make the spread for my family, so I'm a bad mom. No, you're not. <laughs> you're not a bad mom. And I think probably all of us have, as Allison was just saying, you know, that week where you're just, I don't know, just worn out, you know? So, yeah, I, I just don't want somebody and also, to I think, think it's... that I, that I, that I would mm. criticize or judge them for not doing it, but definitely read those labels before you buy something because it's, it's a sneaky. nice thing to support a local baker sometimes if they're, if they're doing a good thing and trying to compete against yeah. a supermarket, you know, Absolutely. it's a nice thing to, to go out and taste someone else's bread as well. Mm-hmm. Is there anything you want to add to the health benefits before we move on to something more practical? No, I just wanted to say that I loved when you said that it had the para and postbiotics because my favorite lunch is a pint jar of garlic (laughs) kimchi or kraut and, you know, a chunk of sourdough and a bunch of butter and just like soak up all the liquid out of that jar onto the bread and and now i'm i'm thinking okay that's why i like it because it's the full meal deal for my gut (laughs) that is wonderful you know bread is is 
just a blessing because it does that soaking up. It does. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's a thing here in Italy. There's a a term which I think is called fare la scapetta. Oh, wow. And it means basically using uh, the end of bread to push around your plate (laughs) when you've finished your dinner and soak up all the bits because that's an important thing for bread to be able to do, of course. (laughs) We who wash the dishes, thank you. (laughs) Yeah. No, that's that's okay. good. Let's talk about practical things. Now, I've started my I started my sourdough journey um, about a year before we left England, so that was perhaps three years ago. And I was just in my house in Penzance, and I got some books from the library. Um, but I wanted to share the the main resource that I used at that time because I think as a beginning sourdough baker um, it's it's tough to to know where to go to know who mm-hmm. to follow everyone's got different routines everyone's oh, yeah. got different ideas everyone builds so their starter differently and what happened with me was I was there in the southwest of England and I wanted to use local flour so I, I was like no I'm not having any Canadian flour I'm not having any of this imported flour I know that the UK flour is low protein, but I'm going to use it anyway. And I wanted to be completely 100% whole, whole grain. So I set myself a ridiculous task. I mean, I'd never cooked, I'd never baked sourdough ever. And I suddenly wanted to use UK flour completely, right. 100% whole grain. <laughs> and what happened was I went online and I, rather than finding an individual person's site, I found a site called thefreshloaf.com. And it's a collection of forums, bread forums, which are extremely active. And you can be a novice or you can be an expert. There's some professional bakers on there. And there are people who've been on there literally like 15 years giving advice to others. And so I I read and I read and I read on that forum because all of the posts from years and years and years are there. And I started to post my bakes, pictures, asking questions. And I found a mentor, a guy who lives in London, who kind of took me on and we started emailing. And he had much more experience than me. And he helped me through working with, at that time, it was a particular English spelt that was very low in protein that I just couldn't get to rise. And we had a relationship for maybe six or seven months, emailing, sharing recipes, sharing what we'd done. And he he literally mentored me um, from that site, and I and I still use the site today when I have problems. I had a problem with my grain grinder a couple of months ago, and I posted a message about that. And it's so helpful. So many different opinions, and it's just it's a free resource. You know, you don't need to go and buy the book or go right. out to the library and try and get books. It's just there at your fingertips. And so I wanted yeah. to give a kind of a really big shout out because that really has been the most influential resource for me in my sourdough baking journey. How about you, Andrew? What resources do you use or have you used? I was going to say, we'll make sure and link that in the show notes. Yeah, definitely. I love, well, of course, the art of fermentation, as usual. (laughs) I Mm -hmm. probably will be the record for most mentioned book on this podcast. But (laughs) (laughs) That book definitely has a great uh, layout. So He's so conversational in that book, I think, is what I like about it, is I don't feel like I'm reading this scientific, you know, tome. I just feel like, mm. I feel like as if I had emailed him and say, so what do you do for a sauerkraut? And then this is what he nice. sent back to me. You know what I mean? Um, I love the Peter Reinhardt's Artisan Breads Every Day, which I mentioned before. It's not completely sourdough, but I pretty much just use the sourdough section to death and nourishing tradition has a little bit on sourdough breads as well and some information about actually if you want to know some more of the scientific and nutritional benefits of you know fermenting grains that that's a great book there's lots of information in there about that but Mm -hmm. i would also say that i've looked a lot online just here and there like i'll i'll have a question and i'll look it up online and like you were just saying a minute ago that there's so many different ways to do it. Everybody has their own way. I would say rather than looking at that and feeling overwhelmed that you just don't know how you're gonna get it right, I would say look at that and say, 
okay, there's about 18 million ways to do this. It can't be that hard. <laughs> there's so, <laughs> yes. so many right ways to do it. And then as Allison, you also just said when, you know, you get these really specific questions. Oh, I had this lower protein flour that I was having trouble. Okay. Then now you're going, now you can go into those detailed, you know, comment sections or whatever and read. Um, but just to get started is, um, I, I think it's from an philosophical standpoint, we just need to know you're basically need to be able to stir a spoon in a bowl. I mean, that's, yeah. that's about the skill level <laughs> that's needed. And the fact and that- And three years on, that's, that's all I still do. I yeah. don't have a mixer. I just, I have my hands and I have a spoon. Right. And I do have a mixer. Gary got me one when we first got married and I love my mixer, but I don't even always use it for the bread. It's just so pleasurable to mix bread by hand. So satisfying. And sometimes I think- I just need to go make some bread just for therapy because it's so relaxing. It's very calming. Yeah. So, yeah, I agree. Yeah. So look online. Don't don't worry about the fact that there's a bajillion ways and everybody's going to tell you on their blog that theirs is the one and only way. There's a lot of right ways to do it's it not. because there everybody in every culture throughout all of humanity has been making versions of this and not everybody has had access to the same water or the same grains or the same ambient temperatures or the same cooking methods, but everybody figured out a way to make it happen. <laughs> so so tell us what type ways. of bread you make there. And if, if it's okay with you, I'd like to hear one of your yeah. favorite recipes or your go-to recipes that you use. Okay. So I love um, einkorn flour. It's one flour that just is easy for me to digest for whatever reason. And sometimes I'll even mix it with bread flour made from wheat, which mm -hmm. I find when that's fermented, I don't really have any trouble with it at all. And we get our flour from Azure Standard, which is here in our region. And they have farms um, out here in the, you know, Montana, Idaho, Washington area. And they use um, what they call a unifying grinder. So the bread is ground. It, it's not heated while it's ground. So that way mm -hmm. it retains more of its nutritional content. And what is my most commonly used sourdough recipe? I would have to say the one out of Peter Reinhardt's book. Just his whole grain sourdough recipe is probably the one I use the most. Um, mm -hmm. although I do have a tendency to, even for things like bread, say that I make all the time, I have a tendency to always be trying new recipes. So I do like to just look online and see things or flip through books and find things and try them out just to see how I like them. But that's probably the one I come back to the most. And, nice. And, and do all of your family eat it? Oh yeah. They, they, they're just yeah. happy if I make bread. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I, I heard that you, I remember you saying you had loads of rye flour as well. So you make rye bread. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I have a lot of rye flour. I like, I love the flavor of sour rye. So, um, yeah, I like that too. And I like to do, sometimes I do it in pans. Sometimes I do it in just standing, um, bowls, bowls. I don't know how to pronounce it, but, um, bowls, I think. Yeah, bowls. Yeah. Oh, do you get me started on different pans? <laughs> um, Sorry. <laughs> so I do kind of, um, it's similar to you that I've tried lots of different recipes. And the other thing that's very similar between our process is the, t the grain that we buy. So all the grain that I work with here is Italian grain. Okay. I use spelt probably for 70, 60 to 70% of my loaves. I also make rye bread regularly, which my husband prefers to spelt. And then I make lectin-free breads, which I use at the moment, sorghum and millet. I feel very lucky to live here in Italy, right. which it's is warm. really a bread bowl country. Yeah. <laughs> so we can get loads of different grains and they're all local and they're all 
beautifully beautifully kind of ground by individual mills and they taste wonderful and they're good for making bread so I wanted to to share I've got lots of recipes for bread on my site Ancestral Kitchen some of them are rye some of them are spelt and some of them are kind of other things you can make with bread but my kind of go-to spelt recipe has been a hundred percent whole grain spelt loaf with something called a scald in it and a scald is where you take a small portion of the flour you're going to use in the bread and before you mix it into the dough you heat it up on the stove with water into a kind of a, a porridge a thick porridge and then you add that into the dough before you put in your starter and before you mix it and the reason I work with that with spelt is because I found that spelt has a tendency to go stale quite quickly Mm. and also the crumb can be a bit hard and the scald helps with both of those things it softens the crumb which makes it really a beautiful kind of sandwichy loaf but also it helps it maintain its freshness for a few more days it's more hydrated so that exactly yeah so there's a recipe on my um site which i'm looking at now which details exactly how to make the whole grain spelt sourdough loaf with a scald with kind of pictures and all the measurements so that can be can be followed like i said there's also recipes on my site for at least two rise i tend to I have a prized tin here, which is made by a company called Emile Henry. Oh, I loved it. I have some of their it's probably pie Emile Henry. Oh, I just before we left England, I I ummed and ahed about this pan, this loaf tin for ages, because we were making in um, tins that had coverings on anti-stick coverings and we know oh. that just those are just not good things Yikes. to bake in but yeah. I would line them with greaseproof paper so that stuff wouldn't go into my loaves and then I saw I was looking for tins trying to find do I get a glass loaf tin can I get a ceramic loaf tin what can I get and we bought this Emil Henry um, loaf tin it's got a lid with two tiny little holes in it and it makes the most amazing loaves the crust is wonderful because rather than having to steam the oven or cover your um, loaf, you know, in a, in a Dutch oven with a lid. Right. Just put the lid on and it creates a kind of an ambient steam, a steam room inside your loaf tin. And that gives the bread the capability to rise up before the crust hardens in the, temp- in the oven. So you get a really good rise, but then you get a really beautiful crust too. And I've used that literally every time I make bread sometimes I make more than one loaf at a time and I only have one Emile Henry unfortunately so I do use other tins as well but I'd I think that really helps with the quality of the bread that that we produce here and it it's just such a joy to use because it feels like a a beautiful part of my process you know it's 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 much valued in our household Oh, absolutely. I love the the way you described that tin. It's ceramic, though. So you call it a tin just yeah. just as a meaning a pan. Yeah, pan, loaf okay. pan, loaf tin. Yeah, but it's not a tin. You're right. It's ceramic. Yeah. Okay. Just I'm terrified sure. I'm going to drop it, but we haven't yeah. dropped it so far in like two and a half years. So It wants to stick around crossed. a little bit longer. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. I, I think the, the way Peter Reinhardt has you do the bread is kind of recreating a situation like that where I will slide it in on so I usually use a baking stone and then you can put your bread on and you can rise it for the final rise on parchment paper if it's just freestanding loaf and then you'll slide it in onto that hot hot, um, stone Mm -hmm. and then he has you put a like a metal pan in the bottom and then pour boiling water into it and then close the oven door just to give that that steamy effect but that pan that you're describing sounds a little bit easier than than that it is i've I've done other methods i've done the stone with an upside down big metal kind of bowl on Mm -hmm. it and i've done steaming the oven but the the pan the ceramic pan with the lid is it's just easier that yeah i um you know what sometimes i just like it easy yeah exactly 
Which is so funny I'm, because I'm we're on moving here. Moving on. Yeah. Ta- well, we're on here talking about these <laughs> complex situations. And we're like, ah, we just want it to be easy. <laughs> well, it's nice to be able to take something that, that perhaps takes a, more energy and more time yes. and find ways to make it streamlined, but also to make it beautiful because I, I love my Emil Henry tin. I really do. I call it prioritizing. And I always tell Gary, I have to think about what is... You know, maybe spending the money on the tin is a, it's a little bit more money to spend, right? But once you have it, now you've eliminated just this chunks of tasks that, you know, with pouring the water and things. So I always think to myself, what can I outsource? You know, now, I'm, now I've outsourced all that effort yeah. of putting the, the pan in and the water. I, I just outsourced that to Emil Henry. <laughs> and he's yeah. doing it for me. Yeah, I think that's a, a good way of looking at it. Thank you. <laughs> I wanted to um, to kind of put picking up on the Emil Henry and the value of, you know, I feel really warm and cosy when I think about that loaf tin and talking about um, what we were earlier, the kind of working together as a team and a, and a household. I wanted to touch on how making bread in the home changes the way that you think about bread and how you value bread. And this is something that I'm, is very close to my heart, I'm extremely passionate about. Particularly because it, it plays into not only how you feel psychologically and as a family unit, but it plays into the waste in our world and the environment right. and local grain economies. Because I know there's just a statistic that's, that um, recounts that 44% of bread made in the UK is thrown away. What? And yeah, we're not exactly. When I read that, I just, I was staggered. So they've- That's a million- Hold on, so- A million loaves every day are thrown away in the UK. Okay, so so we're going to put, we're throwing our intellectual and industrial effort behind finding ways to make more, faster, quicker, you know, cheaper, you know, GMO food, GMO grains, and then we're going to try and do this, whatever, this speedy process you're talking about to crank out a two million loaves a day, Mm. just so we can throw half of it away. I mean, slow it down halfway and stop throwing it away. Yeah, exactly. What? I think when 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 I saw that statistic, I thought, where where is this happening so i did some more research and a lot of it is thrown away in the supermarket food chain so mistakes they make or things that don't get to shelf or things that are too old a lot of it gets thrown away because supermarkets in this country or in the uk do buy one get one free promotions on bread and so people buy two loaves and, and they don't need two loaves and oh, so they throw right, right. some of it away i know in my past um people didn't like the end bits of bread my parents didn't like the crusts and so a lot of people don't like crusts so they just they just throw away the crust because you know why would you when the bread costs only a few pennies of why course. does it matter the, if the you bread throw is away crust? the bread is worth uh, let me tell you if you or i saw somebody cut off the end of our sourdough yeah. spelt loaf and throw it away i'd, I'd, fight I'd, over that. I'd have a heart attack <laughs> You're not the i want the crusty bit i know that's my favorite part and i think um it it often goes moldy as well. I mean, you leave yeah. the bread yeah. in a plastic wrapper in a pot in your kitchen and it's gonna go moldy. Right. And when I was doing my research, there was there have been a lot of initiatives to try to change people's opinion on sliced bread. So, you know, how to use sliced bread when it's old, how to make it less stale, how to make recipes that involve stale bread in. But that seems to be coming from the perspective of, well, you've bought a supermarket loaf and you don't know what to do with it. So this is the way we can stop waste happening. And I really think mm. there's, a, there's a much better way at coming at this problem, which is just get people to bake wherever they can. Yep. Because if you bake your own loaf, you're 
value, the value that you put on that loaf completely changes Absolutely. because you know where the flour came from, how long it took you to source it. You know how long it took you to build your sourdough starter up and how much energy went into it. You know you put your own hands in there. You know you baked it. You know you you know put a thermometer in it to see what temperature yeah. it was and you like, is it done? Is it not done? And you know the smell that was in your house. Mm. You know what it looked like. You know how it sounded when you cut the first kind of slice of it and you just have a completely different view on bread and Italy has a a legacy you know a, a huge swathe of recipes for stale bread because like yeah. you were saying earlier on bread was a staple bread mm-hmm. has been an Italian staple for many 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 centuries and so there are tons of recipes for stale bread and Tuscan bread particularly doesn't have um, salt in it, so it goes dry quite quickly. Mm. And people then have used that bread so creatively to make a ton of dishes mm-hmm. that are part of the, the centre of Tuscan food now. Right, which and which we've now separated completely from the concept of yeah. using up the yeah. bread, of using and then up we go and bread. buy bread to make yeah. the recipe. <laughs> and, and and it's a gourmet dish now, you know, whereas right. it was just a dish that people used to use up bread. It was to, a trash food, and now it's a bougie, expensive, oh, yeah. that's only for the people who can afford so it. So I feel as if, you know, the more people can bake, the more people I can inspire to just bake, that's how to change this bread waste issue. Because the supermarkets aren't going to move. You know, the supermarkets care about profit. They don't care if they throw bread away. They don't care if they, you know, do the buy one, get one free, and people throw the loaf away. Right. The way to get people to, to change it is to get people to care. And the way you care is by doing it yourself. So and true. so, yeah, I, as you can hear, I'm kind of, I'm on my soapbox. I feel really strongly about this. <laughs> hey, stay on the soapboxes. <laughs> it's really, really true. And, and I think what we also should emphasize here is the more um, shocking side of sourdough is that this kind of food goes along with a lifestyle that is slower. And it's hard to just leap from, you know, I rush, 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 you know, from one thing to the next. It's hard to just rush from that into, um, you know, (laughs) Allison getting rid of her iPhone, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Um, So I think making graduations along the way, picking up one skill at a time, and then, you know, Gary and I upstairs were grinding sausage we're making little patties tasting it and then wrapping it in you know butcher paper and writing the date on it and carrying it out to the freezer and why would we do that when we could just outsource it and pay somebody to do it well part of it is because we enjoy the slowness that it forces on us and we enjoy sitting there and we enjoy you know the kids are up there well they're not right now they're asleep but You know, the kids were up there with him, like, helping him shove the meat into the grinder. Or, you know, they watched him break the entire pig down. And they saw the heart. And, they, you know, they want to hold the liver and everything. Mm. So Mm. as you make these little graduations, and I think starting to make sourdough is is a would be a huge, wonderful first step right along that way. You start to experience the pleasure that comes from that. It's a different pleasure than the kind when we, uh, say when we outsource our ability to entertain ourselves and we pay Netflix to do that. And Mm. now Netflix has to come up with something new and fresh and entertain us. But I think it's pretty entertaining to to cut up a pig with your family and um, the learning to savor the joy that that produces just in the same way that we learn to savor, you know, the new flavors of the food. I think that's an important aspect of sourdough. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I, I think it, what you said is small steps is, is important because very rarely do you go from kind of in life in the fast lane to that. I mean, right. I know that 
in my what I call my past life when I was working for Microsoft I didn't do what I do in the kitchen now and it, no. I think if someone had told me what I was doing now I would have been like mm, really <laughs> but each each thing along the line has kind of grabbed me and pulled me in more right. and each step I've taken away from the not that nine to five life slowly yeah. slowly slowly to intentionally build something else yeah. has rewarded me in ways that that tell me that I'm on the right path you know yep. this is this feels in accordance with my nature far more than what I used to right. do and how I used to live but yeah it's small steps yeah for sure and Tara Couture who I I can't remember if I referenced her on the podcast or just when you and I had a conversation no it was you, you and I were talking mm. about the gut biome and mm. um she she said I didn't get here from zero. It was little steps along the way. And that is what we need to hold in our mind. It's little steps along the way. So sourdough is a great place to start because it's so fun. It's so satisfying. And it's very Instagrammable. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Oh, dear. If someone had said that 10 years ago, we'd have been like, what? I don't get it. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so I'm aware of time. We're getting close to time. I wanted to just add another kind of little topic in before we end, which is that sourdough is so much more than just bread. So the processing of souring grains is used and has been used by various cultures in so many more ways than just producing a loaf. So some of the things that I do in my own kitchen, which are a bit different from the standard kind of sourdough loaf, are different processes so using kefir Mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. sour a batter or a dough using a yeast water rather than a sourdough starter to sour a batter or dough that picture you just posted on instagram thank you i'm so excited (laughs) um making muffins sourdough muffins or kefir muffins making biscuits making pancakes there's a huge history um of making sourdough pancakes oh sourdough making pancakes with with discard sourdough crackers making sourdough porridges i know they're not a dough they're more a porridge but they're sourdough porridges Mm -hmm. there's sourdough pizza which (laughs) there's a lovely recipe for on my site which we have often which i love um and i've got a sourdough sourdough pancake recipe on my site sourdough is so much more and in our house for sure you know there are pancakes as i had for my breakfast there are muffins, there are biscuits, there are um, porridges, there is pizza. Um, so it's easy to kind of get focused on the loaf, but be aware that there's there's literally a whole other world around you of all these things you can do with sour grains. Yes, because the grains, as you said, they're pre-digested and they're now available to one stomached humans <laughs> sometimes yeah. sometimes we think we have more than one stomach we're that hungry but we just have the one <laughs> doesn't do very much it's kind of pathetic in terms of digestion if you compare us with other animals out there that can basically eat you know rotting meat and <laughs> they're fine yeah but that's not us but the uh a charlotte mason said in her first volume she has well you know because i've been posting this online but she has a Mm. lot to say about sitting down at the table and enjoying your meals and she says it's not the food we eat that nourishes us it's the food we digest which is yeah amen so powerful for someone to be saying in the 1800s yeah (laughs) when now we know that if and she was in 1800s england where you're really suffering you know you're getting chalk mixed into your bread and this is like the the boom era of um industrialized food and factories everywhere and you know charles dickens (laughs) kind of world Mm -hmm. the landscape and she she never says you know ancestral foods but she could tell that we weren't getting everything out of our food that we once did so that we know that yeah. and some you know people who are are tuned into their bodies and their intuition can feel that mm-hmm. and um mm-hmm. luckily some of them express it and yeah. the rest of us learn <laughs> yeah we just try to struggle along no, I think you are very, very in tune, Alison. You're very in tune. 
Only because really I've 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 had to because of because of my weight loss journey because of the journey that I've been on, right? Um, and also because of moving countries and kind of leaving corporate and all of that stuff. I've had to to look inside and I've had to follow what my body was saying and that's made forced me to listen to learn to listen to my body um which is not in, an easy thing to do no, that, uh, but brings such rewards that that's something you'll see i i've noticed a huge trend among homesteaders is well i'm living this life because my child has such severe um you know allergies that mm. he can only drink camel milk and so now we live on a farm and we have a camel. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? And yeah. this is this this drive to nourish ourselves and our families is what is sending people out to the land because they're just finding, well, it's just not feasible in the city. So I guess I need, and I know you can do this on a quarter acre, but, you know, I just need some space and, and some land. And so here we end up on, you know, a patch of grass or trees or whatever rob and i talk about this a lot and you know the reason both of us have been what looks like so extreme to outsiders in our journey is because both of us got to rock bottom with our health and i wouldn't wish it on anyone else but i also want the world to change and i think it's easy if you if you don't have challenges like that to coast along and be distracted by things um and so although I didn't enjoy the struggles that I've been through. I really wouldn't ask for anything different because they brought me to a place of such, what I feel is such truth and integrity and they keep inspiring me to move forward. That That's really pivotal because, I mean, what you said, <clears throat> I guess we need to hire a billboard to put it up there, but the, I think a lot of people have hit rock bottom with their help health the problem is mm. we're not looking at the food or the lifestyle as the solution we're saying yeah. well i've hit rock bottom yeah. therefore there's got to be more pills i can take there's got to be yeah. something else i can do and if they don't then we're just told oh you just gotta live with that it's just your yeah. future from now on and i wish i mean when you said oh i noticed i would get really bad vertigo whenever i had the sugar you know Okay, how many people with vertigo are connecting mm. it to their diet right now? I'll guarantee you, yeah, like zero percent. <laughs> Nobody is, mm. because their doctor is saying, "Oh, it has nothing to do with your food." I mean, for Pete's sake, when I, I asked a dentist about the kids, and I said, "So," I just wanted to see what he would say, and I, because I know what I've read, but I wanted to see what he would say, and so I said, "You know, so so can they eat things that would help support the health of their teeth? You know, bone broth." And he goes, "No, it's that's not really going to do. What, what we eat doesn't really affect um, oh, our teeth." Dear. And I I just I was like, "Okay, you know, I, I wasn't going to try to, you know, change his mind." And then two sentences later, he said, "You know, the number one thing I see causing uh, cavities in kids is their yogurt," and I. Mm. Of course, he, I know he means sugar, yogurt. So he doesn't mean yogurt. Yeah, he means yeah. sugar. But I wanted to jump up out of my chair and be, you mean the food does affect our teeth? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's because it it's a matter of um, it, the difference is whether you choose to take responsibility or whether you're scared of taking responsibility right. and you pass that on to a doctor or someone else, you know. Mm -hmm. And our culture has this don't take responsibility thing. And it's easy not to take responsibility. It's easy to, to, to have someone else solve your problems for you, but um, it's not a good way to go. It's it would be really nice. Not, but it, but It'd be hard. nice if that worked. That yeah. would be great. But that, unfortunately, isn't the way it is. And I think what just the, the tragedy to me and why I was so excited when you proposed doing this podcast is because the tragedy to me is that we don't acknowledge that our food is playing such a big role in our health. We don't acknowledge that our food is affecting our mood and our, you know, vertigo. We yeah. pretty much get that food affects weight and that's about where it ends. And if we could just awaken everybody to the idea that their food is playing a role, I don't have to tell you to make sourdough or how to make sourdough. Once you have the idea that your food is affecting 
everything about your life, you will begin to seek out and the things will come to you. But until your yeah. eyes are opened to that, you will not see it passing by. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, and one of the pivotal moments of my life of that was when I sat in front of a doctor and they told me, you will never have a kid if you don't take these drugs. And I was like, no, that's not true. And then I took my own journey and proved them wrong. And that once you get a little taste of that, once you see what's possible, Mm. then you just can't stop because you know about these connections and you know how how things work and that you don't have to rely on someone else that you can take responsibility and then that will take you on a path that that deepens every aspect of you as a human and we're getting into some serious topics here. <laughs> this is just we're just talking about sourdough i don't know what you're talking about <laughs> we're just talking about bread and toast <laughs> oh dear i think we need to um to close i had a quote as well you just quoted charlotte mason the um botanical starter book that I've been reading that I kind of mentioned a little bit earlier on is written by a guy called Paul Barker and he has a quote at the beginning of it which is that the secret ingredient of bread is passion and I wanted to mention that it seems like a nice way to to round off our passionate kind of discussion then (laughs) and our discussion on sourdough because really the the bread that is in supermarkets just I couldn't devoid of passion is mm. is not enough for me to explain how that bread is. Yes. But the bread that we make here and the bread that you can make in your own homes when you when you get a loaf out and it smells wonderful and it tastes wonderful, the passion in that is the thing that brings that amazing food to life. Yes. And to bring that into your home and into your kitchen and to your table is just a it's just a joy and it and it transforms so many things so I wanted to to round off sourdough with that and uh, yeah thank you for for sharing about how you make sourdough and your research you've done and I hope that we've inspired a few people in the last hour or so that's the the most we can the most we can do <laughs> yeah yeah great well, thank Thanks, you Austin Andrea. this was exciting can't wait to talk with you again yeah. Me too. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to continue the conversation. Come find us on Instagram, Andrea's at Farm and Hearth and Allison's at Ancestral underscore Kitchen. Until next time, we both wish you much fun exploration and satisfaction in and out of the kitchen.